Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, Mikkel here. So before we get into today's episode, I just want to mention to you that you need to check out all the work we're doing on social media. So don't worry about Instagram, don't worry about LinkedIn, don't worry about Pinterest and those types of things. Where you're going to find me is on Twitter. Every single day I'm on Twitter. We're sharing a lot of the thoughts, a lot of the tips, a lot of the breaking news is coming out on Twitter. And then add to that our expat money forum. We are doing so much amazing things in the forums. There's special content that's not found anywhere else. There's a lot of networking. There's just so much happening on this forum that I really hope you get a chance to participate. And you can access that at expatmoneyforum.com. So find me on Twitter at Thora McKell or join the forum at Expat Money Forum. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is an author, public speaker, influencer, content creator, and high-performance coach. By education, he is an anthropologist and also an entrepreneur and a writer. Please welcome to the show, Seem Land. Seem, how are you, sir? Yeah, I'm glad to be here and excited to talk with you. Well, I'm very excited about this because I have to come straight out and say it. I'm a big fan of your work. I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, so much so that I actually went out and hired you to do some nutritional planning and some supplement and mineral work so that me and my family can stay really, really healthy. And that's really going to be the topic of today's show is immune support and staying healthy while traveling. So I guess before we get going, why don't you take a second and kind of walk us, how did you get into this type of work? Yeah, I've been always like pretty interested in just health and like fitness. And in my high school years, I got into like weightlifting especially. So uh, that's where I learned a lot about like nutrition and exercise and that sort of thing. After my high school, I, you know, kind of continued on this interest uh, and uh, also stumbled upon this uh, idea behind like biohacking. And uh, biohacking is just a way to describe controlling your physiology in some way to achieve like a particular goal, whether that be related to body composition, cognition, uh, longevity, wellness, immunity, or or whatnot. So uh, yeah, just uh, like a just a methodology almost. And uh, yeah, that includes a lot of different things, not just like exercise, also like sleep and supplementation and also different kinds of you know, technologies. I, you know, with a, like just my own curiosity and interest, I started creating a lot of content around uh, biohacking first in my blog 
uh, while I was in college. And after, after that, I wrote a few books as well and started my YouTube channel, started the podcast and yeah, wrote several more books and started doing public speaking. So yeah, it's been just a, like a linear or uh, gradual progression uh, from there. So basically had an interest enough so that you decided you wanted to share your knowledge and the things that you were learning. And then that's actually turned into a full-time business. I mean, that's the best way to do it. I think it's also really interesting because I got into yours because, and, and my subscribers know, we just had our second child. And it was so weird in the first couple of weeks of having a second child, I looked at my kid and actually felt mortal for the first time in my life. I'm not an old guy by any means. I'm still very young, but I looked at my son and was like, holy moly, like I'm really an adult now. Like I kind of always just felt like a child. Even when I had one kid, I just was like, I didn't feel very, not old, but I mean, I felt very like I could do anything that the whole world was in front of me forever. And now I had two kids. I was like, wow, I've got a lot of responsibility. So I started searching around for things on longevity and living for extended periods of time. And a lot of your episodes came up in search. So I was like, wow, started binge listening to your stuff. And you have so many great guests on the show. And I mean, actually, why not right off the bat, why don't we give people the link to your show so that they can check out your work and find out what we're talking about? Yeah, well, uh, my my website itself is aseemlan.com and uh, it has just the links to the podcast and uh, all the other content, the YouTube channel. So yeah, like aseemland on all the uh, all the channels, social media, media apps as well. Perfect. So... It was kind of an interesting predicament for me when I started trying to learn all these things. And I have a background in nutrition as well, but I'm so out of practice. I wanted to do fitness for a living for many, many years. And after being out of it for six, seven years, all of my knowledge just, I couldn't remember. So I thought it was very well worthwhile to pay for your advice. So maybe we can go into depth a little bit more on the beginning on kind of what biohacking is and some of the tenements of biohacking. And then I really want to focus on the immune support for people who are digital nomads and expats and traveling around the world. And I don't want to get into COVID or any of that type of stuff because I think so much of it is politicized, but just staying healthy in general, you know, with viruses, because it's no secret when you're going to different airports and you're meeting people from all over the world, I mean, you're going to be exposed to very, very different things. So I think that the first line of defense is definitely going to be your immune system. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll start off with like the biohacking itself. You know, biohacking, I look at it from a perspective of, uh, you know, uh, it's a relationship almost between you, your body, your mind, and like the environment. All those things have like an effect on your health and well-being. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just a way of trying to achieve certain results like lose fat, build muscle, be smarter or sleep better, uh, what not, live longer, those things are their goals. And you know, that's actually something that humans themselves have been doing for, uh, you know, since the begin beginning of time. Like uh, we've always wanted to overcome our environment uh, in some way, shape or form. Like we wanted to hunt game better. We uh, built spears. We started to cook meat. We started to grow crops. We started to build roads. All those things are, you know, quote unquote biohacks <laughs> in essence. It's just that we different terminology we use that used and like even like shamans they use different mushrooms or something to change their state of consciousness and that is also like biohacking because they're literally changing the state of their body and uh, that's you know actually something that a lot of biohackers nowadays do as well and yeah 
you know, the biohacking itself is just a modern, uh, let's say, human optimization. Uh, modern technology is involved there. We have like uh, different gadgets that can track our, let's say, heart rate and uh, blood sugar levels all the time. So it's uh, like a way of bringing more of this self-quantification into health and uh, wellness that you can use to just be happier, be healthier, and yeah, live longer. Well, when I grew up, I was the smallest, skinniest kid in my school from literally day one till the day that I left. And when I got into fitness, it was always, I wanted to get bigger. I wanted to gain more muscle and look better and things like that. Now at 38, I really don't care so much about those things. Like I said before, it's the longevity. So I think that biohacking is very interesting because it's not just about, okay, looking great and looking big and strong, but also feeling great and feeling strong and using these things as an entrepreneur so that you can do the best work possible, that you can stay focused, that you have brain health and everything like that. Do you see a lot of people coming from the entrepreneurial side to biohacking as same amount as the fitness side? Or how does that kind of look in your opinion? Yeah, well, I think it depends a lot on the part of the world or the region. So like in the North America, it's, it is very common for like the entrepreneurs to uh, be interested in biohacking just to like mostly, yeah, like uh, cognition as well as longevity, a lot of like anti-aging uh, research and uh, lifespan research is done in the States. Uh, whereas in like in the Europe, especially like Finland and uh, Scandinavia and uh, Estonia, uh, the, the, these are more, let's say, regular people just doing it for health as well and uh, longevity. Uh, although there are for, for sure like there are different or people from all areas of life uh, all across the globe are doing it. But yeah, I think uh, from my own experience, it's like a mixture of both. A lot of uh, entrepreneurs, a lot of uh, tech people use it. But if, if they are using it, then their their kind of goals or their methods are also like different. They tend to be more oriented towards like supplementation and nootropics, as well as like uh, minimal dose type of ideas of what's the least I can do to get the benefits of exercise and such. Whereas in like uh, Europe or let's say average people who are... Um, yeah, like, you know, housewives or fitness people even, then they're doing it, yeah, more of a, like a holistic manner that they also try to optimize their like environment and they do zonas and the sleep and uh, those sort of things. So they're not just solely focused on uh, like a cognition or something. So, okay, so let's, let's break it into different types of sections. Like you said, okay, we have sleep, we have the nootropics, we have uh, supplementation, we have fitness. Pick one of those and then let's give a breakdown and maybe some tips or some advice that people can actually put into their lives after listening to this episode and actually make a difference in their life, you know, because that's what this is about. We want to inspire people. We want to help people. We want to arm them with the right type of knowledge. So decide on one of them and then let's go from there and kind of work our way through. And we don't have to get super, super deep, but at least enough so that people have a good understanding of these types of things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh... I'll maybe start with the sleep because like a lot of entrepreneurs, especially or traveling, if you're uh, traveling across the world, then uh, sleep is suffering quite uh, easily. You know, yeah, sleep is important and lack of sleep is uh, linked to many these chronic diseases as well as like accelerated aging and uh, neurodegeneration. So uh, one of the biggest things that usually hinders sleep is like these uh, circadian rhythm mismatches and uh, your body already has its own uh, built-in uh, rhythm or this clock that is uh, running based upon the uh, time of the day. And uh, that, is, that is dictated by the light signals that it gets from the environment. And the sunlight, so the sunlight is like the biggest environmental clock uh, or the sun itself. And uh, our body also has this inner clock inside the brain that uh, controls 
digestion, controls moods, controls metabolic functions and uh, hormones, et cetera, et cetera. And if that clock gets basically off sync or it gets disrupted by something, then uh, a lot of other health problems also come from that because of this uh, desynchronization. Uh, whereas if your clocks are aligned, then it's much easier to also fall asleep as well as uh, be healthier. And unfortunately, like in the modern world, like all this technology is amazing, but it's also very easily disrupts our sleep. So uh, the blue light, the artificial light that you get from your smartphone and the screens, you know, that's fine during daytime uh, in moderation. But at nighttime, when you're about to go to sleep, then it does shut down a lot of these uh, sleep hormones that your body produces uh, or would produce naturally. And uh, as a result of that, you're actually not feeling that tired. And even if you do fall asleep, then it takes a bit longer for your body to go through these repair processes because of that. So yeah, a lot of this bright light at night, mostly this blue light, blue wave length spectrum um, from the smartphone is one of the biggest uh, things that, you know, subconsciously as well as like directly physically has this uh, negative effect on your uh, sleep quality. Okay. So with these hormones that you're talking about, is that things like melatonin? Because I mean, we see melatonin on the grocery store shelves or the pharmacy shelves, and it's supposed to be a sleep aid. Is that something that is good to take, not good to take? What's your opinion on something like that? Yeah. Like melatonin is one of the hormones that is affected by these circadian rhythms. I do think, and melatonin is more than just a sleep hormone. It's uh, also like an antioxidant. It regulates many like anti-aging pathways in the body and has a immune immune strengthening benefits. So it's very important. And uh, if you are, let's say, blocking the melatonin production with artificial light, then you would have like a, you know worse health outcomes as a result of that. Uh, when it comes to say, t- taking a supplemental melatonin, uh, then um, you know I'm not against it for sure. Like it can definitely uh, increase your melatonin levels and uh, improve your sleep quality. And uh, there, are, there aren't any studies that would indicate that it would have like a suppressive effect on your natural melatonin production. So even if you stop taking it, then your body would uh, resume producing it naturally. So, you know, that's fine. And uh, that is good. You know, I do take it on uh, quite frequently if I'm like feeling tired or if I have like some uh, mismatch on my circadian rhythms. But it's maybe like, you know, sometimes it's, it's good not to take it because of like this psychological dependence. So if you're... Uh, used to taking it all the time, then you're creating this ritual about it and almost like a placebo effect that if I don't take it, then I'm not going to sleep good. So uh, like psychologically, it's good to not be dependent of any kind of a supplement to sleep good or do anything. It's much better to have like this, everything else optimized first and then use the supplement or this uh, quick fixes whenever you need to actually. The reasons I always took melatonin in the past was, say I'm flying across the world and I'm on a completely different time zone. The way I always thought about it was like the reset button. If I'm normally going to bed at 10 p.m., but now 10 p.m. of where I am is actually the middle of the day in my new country, well, I need to completely reset my sleep schedule. Is that a good way to use melatonin to kind of help you get over jet lag in a faster period of time? Uh, yeah, it is uh, one of the uh, best ways to do that. And you can definitely uh, use it to like induce some sleep onset or make you a bit sleepier, uh, which is definitely good. One of the best ways to actually help with jet lag, in my opinion, is this uh, intermittent fasting. So uh, not eating because food uh, has also like a really powerful effect on these circadian clocks. And uh, usually, you know, um, when you're flying, then your like metabolism, metabolism is in this uh, like suspended state and it's you know waiting for to receive the signal from your from your food intake to see like what time of the day is almost so if you are let's say flying you're flying into a new time zone and you eat in that time zone then your body uh, while having fasted during the flight 
than uh, eating, and that new time zone helps you to adjust to the new time zone faster. Whereas if you were to you know eat at night in the new time zone, then your body would still think that it's night, even if you know in the original time zone where you flew from, uh, it, it, it's it's daytime there. If your body would still think that it's nighttime, you know, if you were to eat there. That makes sense. I never thought about that before. I do intermittent fasting. I was doing it before I met you, and then I've kind of ramped it up since I've been working with you. So I think I was doing like 13, 14 hours of fasting and around 12 hours of eating. So we've scaled that back. I'm doing about 16 hours of fasting and eight hours of eating at the moment. It actually only took me about a week to get accustomed to it. I didn't think I was going to, to be honest. And actually it was easiest instead of moving it all on one side, I was able to actually do it, stop eating a little bit later at night and then start my first meal a little bit later in the day. So I just kind of carved say one hour off of each side and I haven't had any adverse effects. Actually, I find I have more energy in the day, which is kind of weird and not exactly what we think of when like we always think of you eat food to get energy and then the more you energy you have, the better off you're going to be. Actually, when I eat all day long, I feel more tired and a little bit groggy sometimes. So let's go into your opinions about intermittent fasting and I guess maybe a quick breakdown of what it is and then why people might want to consider this. Yeah, well, intermittent fasting itself is yeah not eating, so to say, or timing when you eat uh, much rather. And the kind of more scientific term would be like a time restricted eating. So uh, instead of eating yeah, three, six times a day, you're uh, confining your daily food intake in a certain time frame, whether that be four hours, two hours, eight hours, 10 hours, uh, or something like that. So the idea behind that or the benefits is that, you know, yeah, like a lot of people report better mental clarity and uh, focus because of, you know, food and digestion takes a lot of uh, energy. So uh, you have to burn a lot of calories to digest the food itself. So uh, yeah, it does take energy. And, you know, usually people, you know, the siesta, you take a nap afternoon, you know, comes from just eating something uh, like a larger, heavier meal in the, in, at lunch. And uh, with fasting, uh, you'd actually improve your own body's ability to produce energy from its uh, internal sources. So rather than being rely, reliant on uh, the uh, outside calories or the food, you're uh, helping to like burn your own body fat and in so doing, you're uh, just, you know, reducing these cravings, reducing hunger levels and just having more energy throughout the day uh, as a result of that. Of course, there are also like a lot of health benefits, medical health benefits uh, seen in research, like uh, better uh, blood sugar regulation, uh, lower insulin, uh, lower blood pressure, lower inflammation, as well as like uh, when it comes to anti-aging and longevity, then, uh, you know, fasting is one of the few things that has this effect on activating many of these longevity pathways in the body that are linked with like a greater longevity and uh, lifespan even. Okay, I want to pick your brain a little bit about intermittent fasting because I actually have several questions that I truly do not know the answer to, but I want to know if I'm doing it quote unquote right or wrong. So first thing in the morning, I I like coffee. I I like black coffee, no milk, no sugar, espressos. If I'm drinking coffee in the morning, does that consider me so like breaking my fast or no? Uh, no, not really. So uh, the the coffee doesn't have like <laughs> calories, uh, any like real calories. Uh, it has maybe like two or three calories, but uh, it's not like significant to quote unquote break the fast. And actually, actually, like the coffee may enhance the benefits of the fast. 
because you're basically activating a lot of the similar pathways in the body with the caffeine and the coffee than you do with fasting. Uh, so this like increased fat burning, increased like stress response a little bit, as well as uh, like a depletion of uh, certain like nutrients or like uh, glucose, etc., cetera, lowest blood sugar. So yeah, the uh, that, that is a, like a similar signal that you actually get from uh, coffee. Okay, so it's actually the calories that people need to worry about which are going to break the fast. So in the same vein of thought, then someone could have a cup of tea, once again, no milk, no sugar. They can certainly drink water, any type of beverage, which is does not have calories. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Like the uh, teas don't break a fast. Mineral waters don't, even like apple cider vinegar, you know, probably really doesn't have any calories. And uh, yeah, you know, in some essence, you could also have like things like you know diet soda or something, uh, although it has also maybe two to three calories. It's still uh, not that significant. So there is like a certain buffer zone that you well, that you can get away with. Like you know maybe you could even eat you know 50, 15, 15 calories or something, uh, fifty calories, uh, and not really see like a significant change in your body's biochemistry because you know it's not like this black and white. It's not like this uh, yeah like on and off switch. Okay, that's interesting. Because, and you brought up apple cider vinegar. That's another thing. Every single morning for five, six years, I've had one, two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar and some purified water. And I kind of wondered about that as well. Like, am I, is it really only water I should be putting in my body or can I have these other types of things? Another one is I take my vitamins at night. Like these days I'm taking fish oil or krill oil or things like that. And I'm taking my magnesium and other things. But that is happening three hours after my last meal or something. So I've had pretty much stomach emptying. Does that affect the fasting or are those such low amounts that it doesn't really matter? Yeah, like that they don't probably matter. Like the magnesium doesn't have calories and the fish oil, it may have like five or 10 calories at max, but yeah, it's uh, so small and it's uh, not going to be a problem. Like because you're like, even like three or four hours after your last meal, you're still not completely fasted, quote unquote, like because you're digesting the food and the food that you ate is like basically the nutrients are in the bloodstream uh, or still there. So you're like burning the food that you ate and it takes actually like a, you know, upper to eight or 10 hours to actually really go into like a full fasted state. So what would the timings be if you were to, if someone were to come to you and ask that they wanted to get into intermittent fasting, what would be like the tips or the timings or the, the first steps for someone wanting to put something like this into their life? And especially for the people like on my list who are traveling extensively, digital nomads, and have to live a very international life. Yeah, fasting is a stressor like, like anything else, like similar exercise. So if you're not really used to it uh, or like not really tolerant of it, then it you know doesn't make sense to immediately start jump into it and go for like a, the longest craziest fast. So uh, if you're new to this, then yeah, just start off by like the first thing is probably just eliminate snacking. So we are having condition to snack all the time as well, which isn't actually that good for you because you're constantly spiking your blood sugar levels, especially if you're having like you know bad snacks. So uh, yeah, like snacking itself is uh, just uh, like a bad habit, and eliminating that already gives you like this some uh, this improved energy production. Uh, the next step would be to uh, postpone some of the first meal that you're in the, having in the day. Uh, usually people start to eat immediately after waking up, but you know most people who are doing the intermittent fasting, then they much rather would skip the breakfast and they usually eat only like lunch and uh, dinner. Uh, that's what I also prefer to uh, skip the first uh, half of the day 
And uh, yeah, they, they, it will be yeah, like, easiest to just wait a few hours at least before you eat, just, just to see like, how you respond. Because you know, chances are you may actually not be feeling that hungry. It's just a, like this habitual response that you taught yourself to do, like you know, just like a, like a signal or a trigger that you uh, start to brew coffee, and then you also have a toast or a croissant or something like that, which is like automatically without even thinking about it. So it does take a little bit, like a, a little bit of effort, but uh, you know, um, fortunately, uh, fasting has like a positive effect on the brain as well, like it studies. So theoretically, you could like override it by making new connections thanks to the, like the uh, brain power that you have from fasting. <laughs> so yeah. I think they generally generally don't you don't need to go on like these very long crazy fasts at least the first few weeks because it does take like a long a bit time to uh, get used to it. So uh, start skipping breakfast a little bit, uh, postponing it for a later day, and try to like eliminate uh, most of the snacking. Well, it's so funny because it's so exactly the opposite of what we were taught in school and in society. Like breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And then there's pictures of like breakfast cereal and like pasteurized milk and, you know, sugary crap. I mean, I, I don't want to get too much into the politics of this because I, I certainly have my own opinion of this, but it is just kind of interesting when you start to learn that basically everything you were taught when you were young is actually kind of wrong. Yeah, there is. It's very hard to make money out of telling people not to eat. You know, uh, you know, there's there's not there's no products. Although there actually have been like new products that do come out, like these bars, like uh, food bars that mimic fasting, quote unquote, that they don't uh, kick you out of fast state or they don't raise your blood sugar, etc. But you know, it's still like a marketing uh, thing going now. And then, what about body composition? Does fasting have an effect on how your body looks as well? Well, yeah, certainly. Like if you're uh, using it for weight loss or fat loss, uh, then uh, you should see uh, like just uh, less fat mass, uh, maybe more defined uh, muscles underneath the fat. So yeah, depends on how you're using it. Like you don't have to lose weight with uh, fasting if you don't want to. Uh, but a lot of the times people who do it, uh, do it for that reason. And uh, almost like also naturally that they uh, lose a bit of a weight because, you know, they eat less and less often. So then habitual calorie intake is going to be lower for the rest of the day. Um, in terms of like muscle growth, so fasting doesn't have like a direct effect on uh, muscle growth because uh, you still need to eat uh, calories, especially protein to build muscle. But, you know, uh, fasting may like have like a pro promoting effect on growth hormone. So uh, growth hormone isn't like a specifically muscle building hormone, but it does have anti-catabolic anti effects. So it helps you to maintain a bit muscle. So if you become very used to fasting, then you, you can also maybe preserve a bit more muscle mass if you are in a, in a, like a serious uh, calorie deficit. Okay, interesting, interesting. I love these types of conversations because in my story, I mean, I started traveling around the world when I was a teenager. And when I was probably about 20 years, no, younger than that, 18 or 19 years old, I went to North Africa and I got really, really brutal food poisoning. Like I was praying to God to die. I wasn't praying to God to get better. I was praying to die and put me out of my misery in Morocco. It was the worst experience of my life. And after that, I was sick for like 10 years. I took, I went to the doctors. I went to the hospital. They gave me antibiotics. I would take the antibiotics and then I would get sick again. And I take antibiotics again and again and again, five, six, seven times listening to the doctors. And Fast forward about 10 years and I started really getting into fitness. Like, I mean, it became my entire life. 
I started geeking out on anything and everything, reading books. I started, I wanted to go to, to university to be a registered dietitian. I got all the university textbooks, learning, learning, learning. And I started working with coaches in the fitness sector. And one of the guys that I worked on, worked with, actually put me on a accidentally a zero gluten, like a non-gluten diet. And I was like, it was so weird. I had a five days of really restrictive eating, like really specific eating, and then like one day or possibly two days of cheat meals. So absolutely, first thing I do is go out and eat a whole large pizza. And then I'd be curled up in a ball for like two days afterwards. I'm like, oh, that's weird. Then the next week I'd eat a giant plate of pasta. And then once again, I would be in the fetal position for like a day or two. Well, it only took me about two or three weeks to figure out that gluten was the problem. And now I had been in the hospital, like overnight stays for this condition. I basically went from 51 kilos to about 60, 62, 63 kilos in three months after I stopped eating gluten because I had been so sick. I was on the, the toilet five, six, seven times a day. Then when I started getting really into it, I started eating a lot. And I, and I, I tell this story because I, have, I do have a question coming, I promise. And then I went from about 60 some odd kilos to about 75 kilos and pure muscle, not pure muscle, but quite strong, quite great shape. However, what they always taught me was you need to constantly be eating like around the clock, nonstop, set your alarm, wake up in the middle of the night, have a meal, then go back to bed in, have a bowl of nuts next to you and be eating walnuts throughout the day, constantly, constantly, constantly eating. So I, I tell this whole story because you mentioned about people snacking and actually how we don't need to stack. So it's kind of confusing in my brain on like on intermittent fasting and restrictive eating and then on bodybuilding side who are like, you need to eat all around the time. So not, not who's right, but I mean, why is it like this? Like, wh why are there such different trains of thought on these types of things? Yeah, well... Um... When you are like a bodybuilder, uh, then it uh, would make sense to be eating more frequently, for sure, because then you you can eat more calories, but you also keep your body in this growth state uh, all the time as well. So uh, it's just that the most average people uh, they don't have any bodybuilding goals or that serious, and uh, you know they don't need to do that, and it's much easier for them to actually restrict it and uh, eliminate some of the meals. Yeah, like a bodybuilder would probably want to do that, uh, but even then, like um, you don't need to do that. Like there, you can easily still build muscle if you eat only like twice a day or even like once a day. It's it's just that the uh, time frame of uh, that may be a bit slower, so your, your growth process can be a bit slower. So because whenever you do eat uh, with a food that has protein, then you're promoting this uh, muscle protein synthesis, and uh, there's only like a certain threshold that you can reach. So uh, even if you eat. You know, uh, you know, let's say you eat 30 grams of protein, which is the kind of the threshold limit. Uh, eating 60 grams isn't going to re result in more muscle growth. Uh, to uh, overcome that limit, you need to be eating, yeah, like six times a day and spike it frequently. Uh, so that's why if you were to be a bodybuilder, then you would want to have like smaller meals and, you know, several times. Whereas the average person, uh, they don't need to do that, basically. That is the easy answer. Well, I remember that the big thing that 
I had always heard was cortisol. Like this was like the devil and you wanted to make sure that this hormone was never released in your body, that you never wanted to go into a catabolic state. What does the science kind of tell us about that and its relationship to food and eating at the moment? Yeah, fasting is a stressor and uh, it can raise cortisol, the stress hormone. It's just that you know cortisol itself isn't always bad. Like you need cortisol to wake up in the morning. Uh, so uh, if you have low cortisol in the morning, then you're actually you know tired and groggy, and uh, you wouldn't have like any energy to get up. So uh, cortisol is somewhat good because also helps with like fat burning. Like when you're doing cardio, for example, or hit cardio, then you're releasing also a lot of cortisol, and that you know, kind of signals the body to start to burn fat as well. So yeah, it's just like the amount of cortisol can be a problem. So if you are let's say chronically stressed out, sleep deprived overtraining and being on a restricted diet, under eating calories, then um, yeah, the cortisol can become a problem. But it's just that, you know, just saying that fasting is bad because it raises cortisol, then exercise should also be bad, you know, because exercise does also release cortisol. So the amount is important and uh, your body does, you know, eventually build some uh, tolerance to uh, any kind of a stressor. So, uh, you know, the more often you do exercise, the higher your tolerance becomes, or the more often you do the sauna, the higher your heat tolerance also becomes. So yeah, your body is very resilient. It's just that we teach ourselves to be uh, not that resilient and more like fragile. Well, and then that, I guess, brings us back to our earlier point about uh, getting over jet lag, which is super, super important. If I'm processing this correctly, what you're saying is by actually fasting in the morning, you can produce cortisol, which will wake you up, which could actually have an effect on getting you back into a proper sleep pattern, which we know how hugely important sleep is. And I mean, I've done lots of flights like today I'm in Brazil. I've been to Brazil four times when I flew from the UAE. Those were 15 hour flights. Like, I mean, there's not many flights in the world that go so long where you are on a completely different time zone. So those types of things are good hacks, tricks, I suppose, to be able to put yourself in that time zone. First of all, do I have that correct? And then second of all, are there any other things that people should think about on that same type of vein for getting over jet lag? Yeah, yeah, you're you're correct. So the... Uh... You can yet yeah, time your food intake specifically to the new time zone, and that helps you to adjust to it uh, a bit better to uh, like the, align the hormones with the uh, new environment. So melatonin on the night side, and then cortisol on the morning side, right? Yeah, yeah. Like exercise, ex exercise is also like movement is also like a daylight signal. So exercising in the morning is uh, good. Cold exposure as well in the morning can be do that uh, releases a bit of the cortisol. Uh, caffeine, you can time the caffeine with that, You like taking caffeine in the morning and uh, blocking out the blue light, like using these uh, blue blocking glasses uh, that have this red lens, you can just filter out this uh, harmful blue light that would suppress the melatonin. Uh, so using them uh, at the nighttime helps you to sleep better and uh, protects your circadian rhythms a lot as well. What about, okay, so with the, with the blue light, I always wondered, my computer, I have it set that at, I think it's 7 p.m., it turns on a blue filter. And same with my phone. At 7 p.m., it goes to a blue filter. And then at 11 p.m., it goes, I have it set to go completely black and white and dim the screen to almost nothing. So, and now I start getting reminders like, turn off your screen. Because I'm, I'm, I run my own business. I mean, I'm answering emails nonstop. Like, I have to physically stop myself from doing this. Do those types of filters that are built into the electronic devices, 
do they help or is it really important actually to have an external one like the glasses, like you said? They do have uh, some effect. Uh, so they do uh, mitigate the majority of the light or reduce it. Uh, but, you know, there's still like the flicker is also something that can be damaging and harmful. You know, ideally, you would still want to use the glasses, but yeah, the, you know, the first best thing would be uh, the filters themselves, uh, as well as like for the uh, smartphone, different kinds of apps have like automatically reduced the exposure to it. Very good, very good. And for the cold in the morning, is that like a cold shower? Yeah, the cold shower is the easiest way to do that. Some people also do like a like winter swimming or cold plunge, depending on time of the year. But yeah, the cold shower is just the fastest and easiest. Mm. Yeah. That's not fun. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. Um, okay. And then while we're on temperature, and you've brought it up very quickly a couple of times, the saunas or the heat therapy or even red light therapy, which I know you and I have talked about privately via email, what's your opinion on these types of things? And then maybe explain a little bit and the, the benefits, because this is something that as a Canadian... I'm actually not so much used to, but as a European, actually, I think it's a very common thing to take advantage of saunas and heat therapy. Yeah, absolutely. And heat, let's say uh, heat exposure has uh, a lot of health benefits. So uh, it usually helps. The majority of research has been done on cardiovascular health. So it uh, improves the blood flow, blood circulation, reduces the risk of strokes and uh, cardiovascular disease especially cardiovascular disease mortality, and, uh, yeah, just uh, better health outcomes across the board. The uh, other health, like the majority of benefits come from like increased immunity. So uh, in like Finnish studies or Finnish uh, region, they have been used the sauna for, you know, since like the 1950s already uh, to uh, help with influenza and uh, typhus and other kinds of uh, these respiratory diseases, Pre even like preventive, uh, like especially like preventive is probably better. The preventive use of the sauna has a protective effect against these diseases or infections. And yeah, when you're actually already sick, then it may not be the best thing to do. But like regular habitual habitual use before getting sick has like a you're basically gonna be less sick, less often sick, and your duration of the sickness is also gonna be greatly reduced because of that. Like the heat basically activates these different kinds of molecules in the body, heat check proteins that repair damaged uh, proteins, as well as uh, misphotoproteins, and uh, also just inhibit uh, viral replication. So even if you were to have, let's say, some viral particles in your system, but you're not sick yet, then some of the heat exposure basically prevents them uh, from uh, replicating. Wow. Okay, that's amazing. Um, when I told my family that I wanted to start doing saunas in the house, they laughed their butt off at me because we live in Panama, and their advice to me was just like, go sit outside for about five minutes because it is just so hot and humid in Panama. What are the temperatures you would normally recommend then for sauna? Because, I mean, I know they're teasing me, but at the same time, there's, they're kind of right. Like, I mean, it is really hot there. Right, right. Yeah, the benefits, to reach the benefits, you would have to raise your body temperature up to like 38 degrees uh, Celsius. Uh, which which is in Fahrenheit, I'm not sure how much it is, but basically like mimicking a bit of a fever, like a mild fever, hyperthermia is uh, where the benefits start to come from. And uh, in this research studies, uh, usually it takes like 15 minutes of uh, sauna 
where you're using the sauna at like 60 to 70 degrees Celsius and upward to like 80 or 100 is usually, but 70 is probably the minimal effective dose where you start to see those benefits. Like maybe, maybe like you uh, accelerate the benefits if you uh, increase the temperature, but yeah, like at minimum it's going to be uh, 17 or 70 uh, degrees Celsius. So 15 minutes. 70 the, degrees uh, Celsius. Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's hot in Panama. It's not that hot in Panama. I think it's probably about 35 degrees Celsius yeah. in Panama. Yeah. Well, you do elevate your body temperature from just being outside on the sun as well. And you will get some heat check protein response from that as well. It's just that you have to be there a lot longer and, uh, you know, stay there for longer, which, you know, itself can have like a bit more negative effects on, you know, skin and that, that sort of thing. But, you know, also like exercise mimics the same benefits. So exercising uh, also activates these heat check proteins and uh, elevates your uh, body temperature. But yeah, you just have to do it a bit longer. Okay, we're just going to take a quick break. So if you guys haven't joined Expat Money Forum yet, then I don't know what I need to do to get you guys to go on this. The conversations in this forum are just unbelievable. The networking is fantastic. There's so much things being shared with the group that honestly, it's more than just me. It's more than just this podcast. It has grown to a life of its own. We have over 2,000 people in our private group discussing things like immigration, asset protection, travel, food, culture, history, everything about being an expat and going overseas. There's tons of work being done on Plan B residencies, on different passports. We're even talking about SIM cards, international SIM cards, and the best places to get your internet if you're a digital nomad and you're traveling around the world. There are so many things that are being shared by people who are actually in different countries, who are digital nomads, who are expats, who have gone offshore, and there's just so much there. So I'm really excited about it. I hope you can see that I'm really thrilled about this group because it's just more than I ever expected. And and a massive shout out to you if you are part of the group and you are contributing and helping other people who are looking to get where you are. You are an awesome person. I really, really appreciate it. So if you guys want to get involved, if you want to join the conversation, then go to expatmoneyforum.com or on Facebook directly, you can search for Expat Money Forum. You'll find us there. We should come up on the very first page. And yeah, join the group, join the conversation. Lots happening there. Okay, let's jump back into today's interview. Well, we're going to set up a sauna in the house under your advice, and we'll see how it goes. I mean, I used to live in the Arctic in the Canadian high north, and we had a sauna there. So I used to go swimming and then spend half an hour, an hour in the sauna with the boys afterwards and shoot the shit and talk and stuff like that. So I have very fond memories of it. It'll be interesting to be doing saunas by myself and see if I can do it on a regular basis. Um, While we're on the topic of temperature i have a question what's your opinion on air conditioning because in panama i actually stopped using air conditioning completely where i think most of my friends think i'm crazy for this but i don't know what what do you think about air, using air conditioning basically around the clock like it, it it definitely makes it more comfortable or more enjoyable so uh if you are in a cooler at least like a stable uh, temperature then you're avoiding these ups and downs but you know, at the same time, it also can uh, keep your body too comfortable. Like we are always seeking discomfort and uh, we are seeking to make things uh, less difficult for ourselves, uh, for our bodies, especially. So, uh, you know, it depends on our goals and such. You know, I think it's, 
it, from a, like a adaptation perspective, it would be how good to have like some some period of time where you're like hot and some period of time where you're cold because uh, these fluctuations fluctuations themselves uh, create this uh, adaptive response uh, for, for for both ends of the spectrum. And whereas this uh, constant stability, uh, thermal neutral zone, um, same temperature, that kind of prevents these adaptations uh, from occurring. So uh, you know, actually, it would be good to have use it sometimes. And at other times, uh, not use it, so that the body would uh, basically keep keep guessing. Okay, this is why I'll, I'll give you my train of thought, and, and I have not done any studies on this, but logically, this makes sense in my brain. We're in Panama; it is thirty degrees outside. If I'm inside all the day and I'm using air conditioning, when I go outside, it's going to feel ten times worse. I feel like I should acclimatize myself to Panama so that I'm used to it. And I can tell you after a year of not using air conditioning, actually I don't quote unquote feel so hot anymore. Yes, I sweat and that's a natural and normal thing, but it's not like this oppressive heat like I felt when I first got there. I mean, we were using air conditioning all day long. We'd step outside and be like, oh my God, I can't take this. It's so hot. So I felt like I, I need to acclimatize myself. Now, when I lived in the UAE, that was kind of impossible. It was like 50 degrees, 55 degrees in the summertime. I mean, there's no, you, you just can't acclimatize yourself to that. But 30, 35, that seemed, I don't know, reasonable to me. And my kid, my wife, my mother, we all got used to it very, very fast. And actually, I hope my wife doesn't mind me saying this. She used to complain all the time about the heat in Panama. And since we turned <laughs> off the AC, she never complains anymore. It's just like, that's just life and normal. So what do you think about that? Do I have it right or do I have it? What does the science say? Well, yeah, there are actually some studies that if you are like exercising in a hot environment, so to say, then your heat tolerance goes up and your performance also increases compared to people who are used to or like training in colder environments, so to say, because their body, yeah, this, if you are used to living in a hot environment all the time, then you will eventually get used to it to a certain point. And uh, whereas if you're cold, then yeah, something that is super, uh, like super, not even uh, not that significantly hot, but slightly above your average, then it definitely feels hotter than it actually is. Uh, so yeah, there, you, that it, you're correct in a sense that if you are, you know, not using the AC, then you would get used to it, and uh, subjectively you feel better from that, or you feel less of these um, swings, less fluctuations, and that is also like how the sauna works. Like the sauna increases your overall heat tolerance, and you know, uh, makes your tolerate the heat better, and uh, as a result of that. Uh, like exercise studies, they find that yeah, the uh, exercise performance also goes up because their body is more used to the heat. So one of the things that happens during exercise is that your you know body temperature goes up, and uh, eventually it's going to hinder some of the performance. Whereas if your threshold for the heat is uh, much higher, then you're able to push the uh, performance also uh, a bit longer. Okay, interesting. And all of these types of things that we're discussing can help with immune support and actually making you more resilient to any type of bacteria or disease or viruses. And these things can actually yeah. help people. Okay. Interesting, interesting, interesting. This is so much fun because I get to just pick someone's brain who knows way more than I do about these things. All right. So continuing on our journey of biohacking, what are some other things that people might want to put into their lives, which will have a positive impact on their life? Yeah. Well, we mentioned the cold, we mentioned the uh, heat, well, the red light therapy is also something that is similar to the heat. So naturally, from the sun, we get the entire UV spectrum. 
uh, or the solar spectrum, and it has uh, different wavelengths, blue light, uh, green light, orange, uh, as well as uh, red. So uh, the research finds that the red and the orange amber lights specifically have like a quite a positive effect on the body, like a lot of anti-inflammatory effects, reduced oxidative stress, better skin health, faster recovery, better joint health, um, and even like increased testosterone. So yeah, the red light is very unique in that sense, and it has a lot of benefits. So, but you know, the modern world, we don't really have any exposure to the red light. We only get exposed to the blue light from the uh, artificial lights and uh, the screens. So the yeah the excess blue light has like a re really bad effect on you know just general health. Besides the sleep quality, it also causes DNA damage and you know can damage the eyes, etc. So it's a very quite quite harmful in excess because if it's in an isolated form. If you get the blue light from the sun, then it's fine because you also get the red light that kind of counteracts it. So the idea is to you know it would be good to have like some artificial source of red light as well in your life uh, with these uh, different uh, therapy devices. Uh, that have this specific wavelength uh, that you can use, you know, maybe 10 minutes a day or something. And yeah, it's usually it feels awesome as well, like really soothing, relaxing and uh, calm. Does it help produce vitamin D in the body, this type of light? Or do you really need to get that from the sun specifically? And not the red lights. Yeah, the red no, lights okay. don't do with the vitamin D. There are like a, vitamin D lamps that have the more the UV light, uh, more the bright light. I think the bright light is more uh, for the uh, vitamin D. Okay. Because I know that in a lot of my research, it was saying that vitamin D is one of the best things to support your immune system. And I thought that that was very funny that we go into lockdowns around the world and they force everybody to stay inside and get absolutely no sunlight. And then they close all of the beaches so people can't go. And it's like, I mean, we, we need to have strong immune systems to fight viruses and disease. And now they can't get vitamin D. So, and you're not educating people on supplementation of it. So that just seemed very, I don't know, curious to me, you could say. Yeah, you're right. The vitamin D is probably the most important uh, hormone for the uh, immune system. And it's, you know, a, a lot of the other things as well bone health, uh, hormones, sex hormones, uh, circadian rhythms, yeah, eliminating bad cells, et cetera. Vitamin D is uh, very important. And, uh, it's also one of the most common deficiencies. Like the majority of people are deficient in vitamin D, and yeah, the only best reliable source is to get it from the sunlight. Although you can, you could use uh, like supplements. Uh, it's some people may not react to it uh, that well, and uh, it may not work. So uh, yeah, the uh, sunlight is the best source and the fastest as well. So when I lived in the UAE, actually everybody there knew that they had to take vitamin D supplements because it was so hot in the summer. Literally, you just could not go outside. So it was a really, really, really common thing that if you ever went to the doctor, it was one of the first things that they checked on you was your vitamin D levels. And the doctors were constantly prescribing vitamin D. That's the first place in the world where I actually lived in where they promoted this. In Canada growing up, we had three feet of snow on the ground in the winter. No one ever told me that I needed to take any type of vitamin D. I think that that is really weird, to be honest. I mean, you would expect the hot country to, the hot country with all the sun to, to not think about it, and then the cold country with no sun to, to promote it, but it's the opposite. Well, they, there are like some you know, racial differences as well that uh, darker skins have more melanin, which basically blocks some of the UV radiation. And uh, you, uh, that's why the uh, Afri Afri African-Americans tend to be more 
commonly deficient in vitamin D as well. Whereas with the uh, white skin, uh, pale skin in the north, you basically get, have less melanin and you also absorb more vitamin D or more UV radiation because your body is almost like, you know, <laughs> even if I do get it very, very rarely, I'm going to kind of maximize it. Whereas people in the equator and um, in the sub-Saharan countries, they're getting too much, too much sunlight. So the body has adapted to uh, kind of block because like excess radiation and excess UV radiation from the sun is uh, also like, you know, harmful. Okay. Interesting. 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 So let's jump, jump into supplements then. So we started with vitamin D. What are some of the other supplements that might be able to help someone with immune support? The next most common deficiency is uh, magnesium. So um, magnesium is responsible for hundreds of functions in the body and uh, as well as the immune system. Usually what happens with like autoimmunity or usually what happens with uh, like an infection is that the uh, inflammation like almost uh, takes over and uh, creates this you know cytokine storm and uh, this uh, oxidative stress that uh, leads down the path of you know uh, more damage from the infections and magnesium uh, usually helps to kind of counterbalance that and if you have like sufficient levels of magnesium then this imbalance is not going to set in because your uh, you know healthy immune cells are able to do their work uh, whereas with magnesium deficiency the, uh, they don't, they're, they're not able to fuel themselves. So uh, yeah, what magnesium is uh, important for that in, in, in this regard, but it's also important for like sleep and uh, stress management, uh, relaxation, uh, plus, you know, a bunch of other things. So uh, that's why people uh, usually are at least not, not getting the optimal amount of magnesium from their food. So um, the, uh, over the past few decades, there's been like a 30% reduction in the amount of uh, magnesium and all minerals in our food because of like, you know, erosion and pesticides and uh, poor agricultural crops, uh, those things reduce the amount of magnesium uh, in our food. And, you know, it's also very hard to get it from like the food sources. It's very rare. Like you, you get it from spinach and uh, pumpkin seeds and uh, almonds and salmon maybe, but you know, then they're not usually the most commonly eaten foods. So you would all already have to, to you know, uh, go out of your own way to uh, get magnesium from whole food sources itself. So just taking a supplement is uh, one of the easiest ways to uh, do that. Do you think that by eating organic food, that the organic food will have higher levels of the minerals that people need, or does that not matter? It does, certainly. Yeah, like the okay. uh, organic foods tend to be uh, more nutrient dense and uh, also have like more antioxidants and things like that. So yeah, that that is one of the uh, let's say perks of the organic foods that's more nutrient dense and less pesticides and things like that. Okay. Well, definitely the you know pesticides fungicides, pesticides, I mean, all of these types of things, that's the, that makes sense right off the bat. But it is interesting that the actual food can be more nutritious and have more of the vitamins and minerals in it that you need. So you might actually be a lot beneficial because like, I mean, I think a lot of people look at the organic food, look at what the price is, and then decide that, you know, is it really worth it or anything like that? But actually you might it might make financial sense as well if you're looking at a cost-to-cost -cost basis. If you're not having to supplement with all of these expensive other things, if you're actually getting what you need from the vitamins. I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, but but it's interesting. Mm. No, you're right. I mean, you're right. Like uh, you could pay for the slightly expensive foods or you could pay for the medical bills later down the line. So Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That, that's an even better point. Yeah. That's another thing that I really love about Central America is in a lot of places in Central America, the food is just naturally organic because the farmers just don't have money to pay Mansano for these 
massive amount of chemicals to dump all over the fields. Okay, yes, the fruits and vegetables have blemishes on them, and they might not quite look as as pretty as back home in the states. But I mean, they taste really good. Like actually, they taste phenomenal, and they're just naturally organic. So I think that just moving to a Latin American country straight off the bat, you can actually live a more healthy lifestyle, just without having to be purposeful about it. Just arrive, and things just naturally are that way.、Mm, yeah. So let's follow on then with other vitamins, minerals, supplements that can help support. Immune function. Yeah, well, a lot of talk、uh, during the pandemic was about selenium as well.、Uh, so selenium is、uh, a mineral, and it helps with a lot of these antioxidant defenses, as well as reducing oxidative stress. Selenium itself isn't that like that hard to get、uh, from whole foods. So、uh, you can get it from uh, organ meats, uh, meats, as well as like Brazil nuts. So Brazil nuts are one of the largest、uh, source of、uh, selenium. And you can cover your almost daily selenium requirements with just、uh, two to three、uh, Brazil nuts, which is you know very easy.、Uh, so yeah, selenium is a very、uh, common one. Zinc is another one that is also got a lot of attention. Zinc is also very high in、uh, seafood,、uh, red meat especially. And、uh, with zinc, they, well, they find that like if you start to using like these zinc lozenges immediately when you get the symptoms of colds. Then、uh, you can cut off the、uh, basically the duration of the cold almost in half.、Uh, so that is like just whenever, whenever I do, let's say, notice some sort of a cold,、uh, like a coarse throat or something like a cold, then taking like the zinc lozenges.、Uh, that's what usually what I do. And、uh, so far, I haven't been like sick、uh, in like a long time. So yeah, I think I think it's pretty、uh, effective for that. And yeah, the, for, in terms of let's say、uh, zinc requirements, then you don't need like a ton of zinc. Let's say you can cover your daily zinc demands by just whole foods, but doing like a, yeah, like a period of sickness or something, then taking a zinc supplement in like a slightly higher dose, like twenty micrograms or forty micrograms a day, is、uh, definitely、uh, worthwhile. At least like in the short term,、uh, because it would help you to、uh, fuel also the antioxidant, not the antioxidant, but the fuel like the immune cell, immune cell response, and、uh, things like that.、Uh, but you don't want to be taking like zinc supplement、uh, chronically because like excess zinc can. Things can cause things like raised cholesterol and、uh, lower copper status. So yeah, like、mm-hmm. you know, the body works in balance, and you、uh, doing it one thing、uh, in excess all the time is just going to、uh, lead some problems、uh, down the line.、Mm-hmm. So it can actually lead to toxicity in the body if you're having too much、yeah. of it. With the Brazil nuts, I think that was a great tip because when I I had never heard of this before, I did not know about selenium or the body's function and, and how necessary it is. And you asked me, well, if you can get Brazil nuts. You should have some of those. I'm like, well, I'm actually traveling through Brazil, so that should be pretty easy. Now we actually have a bowl of Brazil nuts right next to all my other supplements. So now I don't even think about it as food. After I take my first meal, I go over, I take my supplements, I eat two Brazil nuts. It's like two very large pills that I have to char-、uh, that I have to chew. Yeah. So <laughs>、yeah. that that kind of switch in mentality worked quite well for me. Same with my wife; she doesn't really enjoy them all that much. She doesn't really like those types of things, like. Walnuts or almonds or any type of nuts, but she takes them because she knows that they're good for her. And two is such a little amount; it's not like you have to sit there and eat a giant bowl of them or something. So, yeah, yeah. So the other one that I didn't know pretty much anything about that I learned from you and、uh, we talked about the supplementation was boron. Can you talk to me a little bit about this and kind of what its function is? Because that's not. Like everybody knows vitamin C, everybody knows vitamin D, 
but there's some of these other minerals that people might not know so much about and the importance in the body. Yeah, absolutely. Boron is it's not considered like an essential mineral, but it is uh, has like essential functions, and you know it's almost like conditionally essential. Or some countries do, other countries don't. So boron basically is a, like a mineral that is also part of the plant cell wall, it's like in found in legumes and things like that. And uh, the main functions of boron in the body are well, it does a bunch of things, but it may, most of it has to do with uh, helps with uh, vitamin D utilization as well as uh, testosterone production. And also a lot of these anti-arthritic arthritic effects by lowering inflammation. So it's a good for the bones, it's good for the sex hormones, and it's just good for overall health and vitality. Uh, a lot of people, they may not be getting enough boron. Usually you get it from, uh, let's say, dried prunes, actually. You can cover your daily uh, demands with uh, just uh, like a single prune or something, and as well as like raisins maybe, and some legumes and those things. They also have avocados have a little bit. Uh, but it's yeah, mostly like in, in plant foods and there's uh, cell walls. So uh, yeah, for for the, uh, the like a lot of men, um, they usually take like a boron supplement. So three milligrams a day is uh, kind of the optimal dose for the boron actually. And it's just like an easier way of uh, getting it if you're not eating, let's say specifically dried prunes or uh, legumes. But if you were working with someone and you made a recommendation, would you rather than eat one or two prunes every day or take a supplement of three milligrams of boron every day? Uh, well, it depends. Like either is fine. Like uh, I'm, not, I'm not like super, The maybe the bioavailability would be a bit higher if you take uh, from the prunes. Um, but even then, uh, I think it's not uh, that significant. So like either way, which one, which one they prefer. So yeah, the boron itself as a supplement is hard to like, mess up. So even if you take it as a supplement, it's still, uh, you know, very safe and uh, effective. Yeah, because I think that a lot of times people, you know, are a little bit fearful because, I mean, I went on WebMD the other day, we were looking at the back of the packages and we were like, okay, I wonder what the RDA is for this. And then you go on WebMD and they're talking about, you know, if you have excess of this, like you can die. And like, I'm not specifically talking about boron, but I mean, lots of these minerals. I'm like, and my wife's like, oh, that's a little bit scary. I'm like, well, not really. I mean, you would have to have like buckets of this. Like, I mean, they don't really educate you. Actually, even RDA, what's your opinions on what is recommended? And a lot of these, I think, are, you know, government-run programs opposed to what the science is telling us today of dosages. Yeah, well, uh, the uh, RDAs can be very like a, huge variations in them, or like there's a huge difference between uh, meeting the bare minimal requirements for survival and the RDA, as well as like what's the actual optimal dose. So, uh, you know, for example, um, magnesium, you can survive basically by taking only 140 milligrams of magnesium a day. The RDA of magnesium is like 450 or 420. But, you know, the optimally, optimally, a lot of people would need maybe like 500 or 600. And even if like you're super stressed out or you're like you have insulin resistance or diabetes, then you may actually even need like a thousand milligrams. So, you know, there's a huge uh, variation in there. And like vitamin C, RDA is also very low, like a few milligrams or like the survival for vitamin C is a few milligrams. The RDA is a bit higher. But yeah, like if you're maybe, uh, let's say, infected with like an infection, then the high dose vitamin C is very like efficacious. So yeah, I think that yeah, there's just the, the difference can be like, yeah, anywhere from 10 to 100 fold between minimal effective dose and the uh, optimal dose. So yeah, it's, it's just you have to uh, educate yourself a bit about it. 
and also just try to understand your own individual circumstance in a particular like scenario. Well, I remember looking at vitamin D and what the RDA was was so super low, and I was like, I was like, this is weird. I'm taking four, five thousand IU's a day, and I, I'm going to make up a number, but it was like a couple of hundred that was the RDA, and I'm like, I'm having a thousand times or two thousand times what the what they're recommending, and I'm like, I've read lots of scientific reports that. Are now showing that no, we need quite a bit of vitamin D in the body for optimal health. So I think that that's also kind of ties back to the overall topic of biohacking is not like okay, what do you need just to sustain yourself to stay alive, but what do you need to thrive to be the best version of yourself that you can be? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> difference difference between surviving and thriving is a huge. And yeah, like enjoying yourself at the same time is also like a big part. Like uh, just uh, grinding through life, or uh, you know, feeling uh, tired all the time is not doesn't sound really good. Whereas you know, if you're going to biohack yourself and uh, figure out why you're tired or something, then you would have uh, just more joy as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, I've noticed a massive difference in my life with, oh, I told the story about my weight and, and how that's affected me by changing my diet and in the optimal way that works for me. But even just over the last couple of months of working with you, I mean, I've noticed a difference. And with the magnesium, I have never slept so well in my entire life. And people are always like, oh, you have a new baby. Are you getting any sleep? I'm like, actually, I'm sleeping amazing. It's so funny too, because I think because I sleep so well and my wife is taking magnesium and she's sleeping so well that our son is actually sleeping better too because he's in a more calm environment and he sleeps through the night completely. Like he's up once or twice to eat and we change his diaper and then that's it. And then we all fall back asleep. I've never had such deep sleep in my life as with the magnesium. And then one other thing that I learned from your podcast, not from working with you privately, but was uh, Brain FM. You were talking about it on one episode and we started putting that on. It's, it's basically white noise. And actually, I'll let you describe it a little bit and uh, what your opinion on it is. From my side, it's certainly helped quite a bit. Yeah, well, um, this white noise can be very beneficial uh, for um, like creating this uh, background noise that blocks against the outside noise. So if you're like in this small, like a bubble, almost a bubble of white noise, then the outside noise has less of an effect. And that is also like maybe creates this subconscious uh, like coherence, like our brain uh, is, you know, it likes these certain patterns and vibrations. And if it is vibrating in this certain frequency, then you're, you know, uh, calmer, more relaxed while listening to it. And also kind of uh, synchronizes yourself uh, with that and usually helps with sleep. Any kind of like different kinds of these apps have like similar effects that your brain, you can change your like yeah, brain state, you know, by changing some of the frequency or the, the kind of frequency of the music that you're listening to. And uh, because your brain, you know, has certain frequencies, uh, alpha waves, delta waves, uh, beta waves, and et cetera. And they are co correspondent with uh, certain, let's say, activity states as well. If you're in like a meditative state, then it's in more like this alpha wave state Wakefulness is uh, delta, if I'm not mistaken, or if it's sleep. Or beta is wake, wakefulness, and uh, delta is uh, sleep. So yeah, you can kind of actually listen to those noises, uh, those uh, waves, those sound waves, and uh, also change your own brain's uh, state. Yeah, it is noticeably different. I mean, if I have 
a ton of emails to respond to, or if I have to write an article or I have to do client work, I'm now putting on Brain FM and I can just plow through for hours on end. And at the end, I'm like, wow, I just got like, I got three days worth of work done in an afternoon because there's just, I'm, I'm not being distracted every 10 seconds. And I mean, I'm just so focused. It's, and I, and I'm, I don't know how much of it is placebo effect and marketing and hype and how much of it is science. I do know that it is definitely making a difference in my life. And then from the sleep side, I think it is also between that and the magnesium is really adding to having really restful sleep. Now with having a new baby, I believe that a baby is used to having sounds all the time. You know, when a baby is inside the womb, there's heartbeat and there's all these types of sounds. He's only five weeks old, six weeks old. For him to be in a completely silent environment, like freaks him out. So when we're putting this on, I mean, he calms right down. So, I mean, the white noise has certainly helped. And okay, yeah, you can go get some free app online and it's like, uh, I don't know, a hair dryer or the sound of a train or the vibration of a car. But the Brain FM, I thought was quite neat because they're really purposeful about it. Like it's all science backed. And like you said, they're using the different types of vibration for different type of things that you want to accomplish. So being purposeful in these things, I think is, is worth the money. And I'm, I'm not sponsored by them or anything like that, but I am a big fan of their work. And I think I paid 50 or $60 a year or something to sign up for the app and worth absolutely every penny of it. Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the brain is a mysterious thing. Absolutely. So we're getting close to our time here, Seem, but let's kind of circle back and quickly highlight some of the things that we discussed. And, and if we missed anything that you think is really going to be beneficial for people who want to improve their immune health, especially for the digital nomads and the people who are traveling, because I just think this is such an important, important thing. Uh, feel free to put those in. So we kind of started, we talked a lot about the intermittent fasting. We've talked about diet. We've talked about the supplementation. We've talked about heat and cold and air conditioning and red light and things like that. What are some of the other things that people should keep in mind for this topic today? Yeah, well, we didn't talk about like exercise a lot, but uh, like uh, regular exercise also has a preventive effect on uh, a lot of infections. Uh, so like metabolic health is huge when it comes to uh, determining your outcome of any infection. So if you're uh, with uh, diabetes or uh, high blood pressure, high uh, triglycerides, uh, metabolic syndrome, then uh, your yeah basically your immune cells are weakened and uh, your uh, ability to react to any virus or infection is also lower. So yeah, taking care of your health is important. That that means uh, not overeating calories, exercising regularly, uh, doing some intermittent fasting maybe can be useful. Uh, but yeah, like regular exercise is uh, also just the besides the health benefits also has like a directly uh, impactful benefits on the immune system. But with the caveat that like overtraining is something that actually weakens your immune system. So uh, you have to find like the optimal uh, sweet spot. Uh, so uh, being sedentary is bad. <laughs> overtraining is bad. Uh, but, you know, the uh, regular exercise a few times a week, maybe like three to four times a week and uh, not any more than like an hour is uh, probably the best, uh, like the amount. And do you recommend like weight training, like resistance training or cardiovascular or both or HIIT training? Or what do you think the sweet spot in is there with the type of exercise? 
both are f- beneficial for sure. But when it comes to like improving metabolic health and the body composition, uh, then uh, weight training is uh, by far more superior. Like uh, you're gonna see uh, more improvements in uh, muscle mass and uh, fat loss with uh, resistance training. Uh, with the cardio, um, you know, you can definitely burn calories and uh, you can you can lose weight with it and such. But usually, it uh, doesn't accompany the uh, change in muscle mass, which is you know, quite critical for determining how insulin sensitive you are and what your blood sugar levels after after a meal. That's much more determined by your muscle mass. So uh, yeah, that's why I you know m- much rather prefer you know build muscle, but you know you can do the cardio uh, just an a- addition. Well, I definitely need to get back into weight training myself, but what I'm really making sure I do is go for a walk every day now, or if I do my phone calls, I'm no longer sitting at the computer to do my phone calls. I'm pacing in my house, just trying to be upright. Cause I think that humans are not meant to be sat down for eight, 10, 12 hours a day, and then sleeping flat for eight, eight, nine, 10 hours a day. And I mean, we are, meant to be walking around. So these days I have a really pretty area that we're in. So I'll put on my headphones. I'll listen to a podcast, maybe your podcast and go for a walk for an hour. And actually just even that alone is having a good benefit on my life. I think. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Walking is a good, you're moving yourself and uh, yeah, also like reduce the stress, keeps you, get your mind off work. Okay, actually, I was going to call the episode, but then when you were speaking, I thought about one other question that I'm very, very curious about. In the media these days, they talk so much about the dangers of eating meat, um, how harmful it is, it's harmful for the environment, it's harmful for the body and for longevity and things like that. In my many years of research, I did not find this the case. And actually, in listening to your show, you eat meat, right? You're not a, a vegetarian or a vegan or anything like that. Can you kind of share what your opinions are on eating animal protein? And also, I want to discuss with you about organ meat, but maybe we can make that a separate point. Right. Uh, well, for sure, like you, if you overeat meat, then that could be harmful. And usually when in research, they find this association between meat consumption and um, you know poor health outcomes, uh, cardiovascular disease or uh, just the mortality, is that those people who also eat meat, you know, they're also not exercising. Uh, they usually have like worse habits. Uh, they're smoking or something like that. Um, and they're overeating calories. So yeah, it's uh, like much more, much rather like how much meat and what kind of meat. So uh, the meat inside like a hot dog or like a hamburger is also considered, is also categorized as red meat in the studies uh, because of, uh, and, that, and you know, you're, besides getting the meat, you're also getting the sauce and the, uh, the fries and uh, the hot dog bun and uh, things like that. So, uh, you know, it, it's, the studies are very misleading in that sense. Uh, so there's very few studies that actually compare, you know, like grass-fed steak or uh, regular, regular kinds of meat, uh, whole, whole food meat uh, with uh, the other like plant-based options. So, yeah, I think like a mechanistically, uh, the re- reason why meat would be harmful is also not really uh, solid. So uh, there isn't like any uh, like clear associations between also like higher cholesterol levels and cardiovascular disease, and uh, it's mostly uh, like mediated by, especially like n- like like not regular cholesterol. If it's like oxidized cholesterol or the uh, large cholesterol particles, then uh, those do are associated. But you know, uh, if you're eating meat, then it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get oxidized cholesterol. Uh, the cholesterol can get oxidized from uh, many other things like, you know, vegetable oils that you get from like the French fries and uh, other cookies on the shelf and chips and stuff like that. 
Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, it's, so it's not like necessarily the meat that is problem. It's all the other things that also go wrong. And, you know, the average person, yes, they do eat meat, but they also uh, do the other bad things that, that are contributing to uh, poor health. Well, I, I remember reading many, many years ago that dietary cholesterol doesn't necessarily equate to blood cholesterol. So just because you eat eggs and they're high in cholesterol doesn't mean that you're going to have a bad heart and get clogged arteries. Actually, if you're eating eggs, I would argue that they're very good for you. I mean, I have not seen a lot of scientific reports that will show me otherwise, but I have seen a lot of propaganda machine that's telling people that, you know, high fat diets are bad for you and you should not be eating eggs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like it's a way of yeah, like framing framing the uh, studies and uh, the the way you conduct the studies is also important. And as for your point on the type of meat that you're eating, like I put myself in this situation again. I mean, I'm in Brazil. We're going out for churrasco, like Brazilian barbecue, once a week. There's a massive salad bar. I'm eating literally like. Tons of different types of green vegetables, salads, raw onions, garlic, everything like that. And then they're coming to the table with barbecued beef, beef and chicken hearts and like all these different types of meat, like five different types of steak and all these types of things. I mean, that is very different than going to McDonald's and saying like, oh, I'm eating meat. I mean, you can't compare the two. I mean, they're just so, so different there. So I think that the type and the quality is you have to you have to put that into context as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, organ meat. Let's dig into organ meat for a few minutes here. This is something that I have struggled with from a not just a taste side but also from a mindset side. As a Canadian, we are kind of served meat usually on a like you go to the grocery store, it is a boneless, skinless chicken breast on a piece of styrofoam. That's it. Like we, we don't have much of a relationship with our animals at all. And I, we don't really see a lot of the organ meat on the grocery store's shelves. Now, I've been gone for 20 years. I married a woman from China. They eat literally everything. I have been watching her for years eating it and Okay, I've always, I, I try everything, but putting it into my regular diet was not a big thing. I listened to your podcast over the last couple of months, and you are a big fan of organ meat. Can you kind of explain to us why someone should also be a fan of organ meat or what they should know about it to make an informed decision? Yeah, well, the biggest thing is that organ meats are the most nutrient-dense uh, foods on the, on, out there. Also, and uh, they have all the vitamins and minerals that your body needs. And yeah, that's pretty much it, though, the biggest reason why you may want to incorporate some organ meats. So liver is king of that. And yeah, you can just, you know, almost cover all the, all virtually like all the vitamins and minerals with just like ounce, one ounce of liver. And yeah, it tastes, you know, somewhat different, but yeah, it's really nutrient dense and you don't necessarily, I don't think you need to eat them, but it's just like so easy to uh, cover all your uh, vitamins and minerals with that. Uh, so it's like, you know, <laughs> why not? Mm -hmm. And is there any difference between chicken liver, pork liver, and beef liver? Like we're eating beef liver, I'd say three, four days a week now, which, and I mean, one to two ounces, like you had said. So I'm not sitting down for an entire plate of liver. There's not that, a huge difference between the livers or the types of liver. So they're all pretty uh, similar. Okay. Well, that's good. I mean, chicken livers are, I mean, I've had chicken liver pate or duck liver pate. Those are quite tasty, 
the beef liver is just fried beef liver is challenging. I mean, I'm learning. I'm getting accustomed to it. The the chicken hearts at the barbecue, I think I've had them maybe five or six times now over the last couple of months. And the first couple of times, I swear I didn't even taste it because I was just trying to get my head through it. Now we were there a couple of days ago, we had it and I was like, actually, these are really delicious. Like they're really meaty flavor and they're not that irony flavor that I mean, is normally they're not normally associated with like liver. Like liver is like a really intense flavor that people need to get their head around. The chicken hearts just tasted like really meaty. What are some of the other organ meats that someone might want to look into, or maybe the organ meats that have a lot of benefit that are easier to start, I suppose? Well, the easier to start is a heart. So heart is actually pretty tasty and very like stingy or uh, rubbery. Mm-hmm. And almost like tastes like steak. Um, so that is the easiest one to start. It does have like a slightly less nutrients than liver, but it's still a good source of other nutrients like uh, CoQ10, which is actually good for the heart and uh, mitochondria. Um, another one is maybe like kidney, but uh, yeah, it's a very, uh, like a very, very uh, strong taste and very like unpleasing. So uh, yeah, I think uh, I, I'm personally not eating any kidneys. Uh, because I'm just eating liver, right? Like the liver itself covers almost everything that you need. And I may have like some uh, heart or even like beef tongue is actually pretty tasty. The other crazier ones like spleen or uh, pancreas or uh, kidney. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not like really eating those. I'm just focusing on the liver. I always wondered about liver though, because the liver is a filter for the body. So a cow's liver, the cow eats stuff and then it the liver filters out the bad stuff it is kind of counterintuitive to me that we would want to eat the organ, which is a filter. How does that work? Like, I I just don't get it, to be honest. Well, yeah, the uh, body or the liver filters toxins, but doesn't store them. So it doesn't store them. Okay. Yeah. So even if it filters them, you know, this doesn't stay there. And uh, most of the toxins are actually in the fat tissue. Uh, So because they're stored for calories and, you know, they're put into way into like the like pantry, basically. So the the fat tissue is actually more toxin rich than the liver or the kidneys. So, yeah, like if you were to be concerned with that, then you would be more interested in eating like more grass fed stuff and uh, that sort of thing. So the liver itself is, yeah, like pretty uh, safe. Okay, and by fat, you mean fat anywhere in the cow? Like, I mean, I eat ribeyes. I like the fattier, the better. I mean, just from a taste perspective. I don't know about it from a health perspective. Right. Well, the usually the subcutaneous fat is uh, more of this uh, pantry type of thing that you wear stores uh, the calories and extra extra fat fat, fat fat acids, but like the visceral fat, the like intramuscular fat and fat around the organs, that is more like the quote unquote unhealthy fat, uh, visceral fat. Uh, so, you know, the uh, like Wagyu beef is probably uh, not the healthiest uh, form of it, but regular steak is probably fine, I think. And even if even then, like the quantities themselves are like so uh, small that it doesn't really have like a huge uh, impact. Okay, so that's the piece of the puzzle that I was missing with the with the liver because I would logically think about it like, okay, it's a filter. It takes out all the stuff that is bad for the body. Why would I want to eat that? But you're saying you want to eat that because it filters things but it doesn't store it there. So as soon as it filters it, it's pushing it to other parts of the body. So you're not actually eating a concentrated version of the bad stuff. Okay, This has been an amazing episode and I've certainly learned a lot from you today as well as working with you over the last couple of months. Why don't you explain a little bit about 
how you help clients traditionally? Because I've talked a little bit about my story, but I mean, you work with people all over the world. I do uh, have people from like all across all, all walks of life, uh, entrepreneurs, poker players, <laughs> regular housewives and uh, personal trainers even. Uh, so uh, yeah, like usually what I'll do is, you know, um, I'll assess their like situation in, in the beginning, like if they have like some blood work, they, they should do for that for sure. They have genetic tests, DNA tests. Those are all useful information. And but usually like based upon all this information that I gather, I put together like a plan for them, uh, for their goal of the particular situation they're trying to solve, whether that, that be uh, fat loss, energy levels, uh, some health problems, productivity, uh, mood, or uh, yeah, everything or anything that they want solved. And based upon that program or the uh, plans, uh, we also have like some uh, consultations and yeah, it's just very, uh, let's say, I don't know, auto-regulative or like the proper term would that be. Like I don't have like any strict, you know, uh, plan that I follow all the time. Although I have like some guidelines and the uh, guideposts, I uh, try to adjust it based upon how I'm going or what's the uh, like progress is. Like if we're starting to see like some different results, then we change it. Or if we're getting the results faster, then, you know, we can, you know, start working on something else, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very, yeah, like auto-regulative and based upon the individual. And yeah, like depending on how the people uh, would like to work with me how, or how long they would like to, some people have worked for me for, uh, you know, up to two years now, whereas others usually do like on and off, like type of consultations, they may take a consultation, try things out for maybe two months or so, then come back, et cetera. And yeah, it's, you know, depends on the person. Amazing. I love it. Same brilliant conversation today. Learned so much from you. I really appreciate your time. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about what you do, where can we send them? Yeah, thanks. Sir. And uh, my website is uh, seamland.com. And on the, all the social media platforms, I'm also uh, seamland. Perfect. And I will make sure that I link to this at expatmoneyshow.com. Seam, thank you so much for your time. And I will talk to you soon. Yeah, it was good. Hey everyone, I just want to tell you about a great opportunity. You see, we've had a massive interest lately in learning a second language. And I do a lot of my language training with my very good friend, Ollie Richard. We've been friends for three or four years now, and he's been on my program, and I've been on his program, and he spoke at my conferences, and I've spoke at his conferences. And he really is a genius. His techniques for teaching languages are just out of this world. He actually makes it fun and enjoyable. He was one of the main drivers for me rekindling my interest in Spanish. And under his tutelage and his advice and using his programs, I went from really crummy Spanish to quite fluent in a really short amount of time. So if you are looking to learn a second language or maybe even a third language, what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language forward slash language, and it's going to redirect you to some of all these best courses out there in the world. And there's some special promotions going on, some special opportunities for subscribers of my podcast. So I hope you take us up on this offer and go and check it out. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language to get the best resources in the world for learning a second language. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. 
I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.